Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Serpa Salinas, Salinas, who is affiliated with the University of Eastern, Eastern Finland. She's also affiliated with the Laborator in Larca in Paris, France. She's also worked with the University College London Sarah Parker Raymond Center for a Study of Racism and Racialization, which is in the London, UK. She's also been in 2020 and 21 a fellow at the Terra Foundation for American Art at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Today, her research interests most often focus on race, gender, and sexuality from the 19th century to the present. She has edited works such as Race and Transatlantic Identities, Transatlantic Conversations, and Neglected American Women Writers of the Long 19th Century, which was published in 2021. Today, we are discussing her phenomenal book, An Abolitionist Abroad, Sarah Parker Raymond in Cosmopolitan Europe. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Salinas. Thank you so much, uh, Katrina, for inviting me and for your interest uh, in uh, my work and um, for this very nice introduction. So thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Okay, so uh, many uh, people categorize it as a biography, and um, I guess in a way it is, but um, my main aim really was um, to um, use uh, Sarah Ramon's uh, story as a case study um, for people to uh, learn about a black 19th century black woman's uh, transatlantic experiences. So, um, so what the book does is um, it uses um, Sarah Ramon as our guide into the life of uh, 19th century black Americans. And so uh, the book starts by uh, looking at her life, um, her youth, uh, education, schooling um, in the United States. So she was born free uh, into a family of activists uh, in Salem, uh, Massachusetts. And so uh, then she herself became an activist, um, uh, an abolitionist, so talking uh, against um, uh, slavery. And she toured first in the United States, and then um, in she traveled to England. She toured in um, England, Ireland, um, Scotland, and um, after the Civil War, uh, she then moved to Italy, uh, where she studied um, at, at one of Europe's most prestigious uh, medical schools um, in Florence. And then uh, she married an Italian and uh, she lived the rest of her life um, in in Italy, where she passed away in Rome, and uh, she was buried there. So this is basically, uh, we follow her and um, get an idea of uh, what type of a life a black American woman could have had uh, in this transatlantic context in the 19th century. Now, why did you choose her story? How did you become interested in her activism and her travels abroad? 
Okay, well, this is a long answer now because it goes back to when I was writing my MA thesis, and that was on um, 19th century American writers who had been to Florence uh, and who had a commemorative, commemorative plaque in the city. And so um, I guess it comes as no surprise that these were all men. And so um, then I continued my research um, and in my PhD uh, uh, dissertation, um, I look at uh, all um, 19th century American writers who came to uh, Florence and resided here a longer period of time. And so this uh, included women as well, uh, Edith Worth and Constance Fenimore Wilson and so forth. Um, so it was also not only if they resided here, but if they also wrote about uh, Italy extensively. And so then I was wondering, well, where are all the Black Americans. I mean, I didn't expect them to be many uh, Black Americans in the 19th century who traveled to Italy, but, um, you know, I was expecting to find at least one. And so um, I was uh, digging to uh, find information um, about potential transatlantic travelers and found Frederick Douglass. And so um, so that I found really fascinating and um, his experiences here. So then uh, after my PhD, I, I continued this line of inquiry and found uh, that also William Wells Brown had come to, um, to Europe. And so I wrote an article about them, Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown in, um, in uh, Europe. And then, um, then I read uh, somewhere uh, about Sarah Parker Raymond and became really interested in, in knowing more. There wasn't much material, secondary sources uh, available on her, uh, but um, she intrigued me uh, right away. And so in 2012, I organized this uh, workshop. I'm, I'm part of this uh, European Association for American Studies, and we have a small um, uh, study group uh, on neglected American writers uh, of the 19th century. And so we meet in different places of Europe uh, once a year to uh, examine a, a text or, or a theme or topic. And so I organized uh, the workshop in, in Florence in 2012 and, um, and chose Harriet Jacobs's narrative as our, our text. And uh, people could do presentations also, um, um, anything related to Black American, 19th century Black Americans. And so it was a very multidisciplinary uh, event and um, people were talking about artists and and writers and so forth and so my presentation my short presentation was on on Sarah Ramond and so um, my uh, keynote lecture I had invited um, Professor Farah Griffin from Columbia University she had uh, very generously agreed to to be our keynote speaker and so after the workshop I took her around Florence to kind of see where the the writers had lived and. Uh, the places that they had written about. And we walked past the Santa Maria Nuova Hospital. And I just mentioned that um, that's where Sarah Ramond uh, studied. And I wonder if they have any documents in their archives. And uh, Professor Griffin just commented, and we don't want to know, do we? And that kind of made me think, well, yeah, I mean, I'm in Florence. This is something I'm interested in. How about I, I, I try to find those documents? And so that's how I got, got interested in, um, in looking further. And, and it took me several months before I even found the documents, like where they were located. So 
from that on, um, you know, I just couldn't let go. I still haven't let go of uh, this fascinating uh, woman and her life. So now most aren't familiar, um, especially here in America about the life of Sarah Parker Raymond. Um, it's becoming a little bit more so now, but why do you think black women such as her and others have been relegated to the margins of history? Well, you know, as you know, history is, it's a narrative and it's told by someone and from uh, somebody's point of view. So, um, you know, we have different historical narratives, uh, different uh, viewpoints into history. And so, um, unfortunately, many women are um, somehow erased from this uh, historical narrative that we hear. And um, so not only black women, but also white women. And so they are kind of just as if they had never existed. And um, so that's basically what I'm really uh, interested in, uh, in just writing these story, these uh, women back into the, the history that they actually helped change. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that is great and important recovery work that you are doing for these women. Well, thank um, you. You mentioned that the... It took you several months to get the document. So that's where I want to ask you about the sources and overall, how difficult was the research process? Well, the research process, like uh, everything, um, like every time when you do archival research, it's extremely uh, challenging and extremely time consuming. Um, but even more so when you deal with uh, Black Americans, because um, if we think of archival sources, uh, we often have like very prominent figures, um, men or women, um, you know, whose archival documents, though so their letters and uh, journals and diaries are perhaps collected into, you know, one collection that you can go and consult in a museum or, or um, you know, wherever the archive is. That's not the case for, uh, for Black Americans. And so um, I still don't know, because, you know, like keeping a journal in the 19th century was extremely common, but I have not found, for example, uh, Sarah Ramon's journal or her family's journal uh, you know, any member of family, you know, if they, they kept a diary, uh, also photographs. So um, it's it's extremely challenging. And, um, you know, just finding these uh, medical documents uh, was was a challenge. And um, but, you know, the the sensation was incredible when I when I pulled out that folder from the shelf and it was even though it was kept in a in a like a glass um covered um, cupboard, uh, it was um, full of dust. And it really looked like nobody had opened that folder since the 19th century, because uh, in Italy, people are interested in, you know, much later, like, like um, uh, um, history that goes way back uh, to Galileo Galilei and, and um, you know, the Renaissance time. And, and so 19th century is really neglected uh, often. And so, um, you know, I, I really don't think that anybody had opened those folders after the 19th century. So that was really um, exciting 
to to do that. But so some of the the documents were here in in Italy. Um, then some documents I found uh, in England, like she her school records were there. And um, so I, I was looking at um, census records in the United States, passport applications. Um, then these medical school and other school documents that were located uh, in Europe. And then uh, her marriage certificate, I happened to find that. So that was really great. And then she um, she was a member at this um, uh, lending library. So uh, from there, I could, I could uh, find out where she lived and so forth. And of course, you know, the, the starting point uh, for my research was um, the few secondary sources that had been published. So um, I'm really grateful for those scholars who whose work um, helped me get, get started on, on mine. Oh, wow. I mean, it took you on a journey to many places to recover the life of Sarah Parker Raymond, but it was a well worthwhile effort. I can tell you that much. Right. And if I can just interrupt one thing, uh, you know, pe- people don't usually realize how difficult archival research is because you know, you have to go through so many documents and uh, you can travel to places and, and consult documents and find nothing that's relevant to your own research. And so it takes a really long time to find even one letter. Now, of course, we have there's more material online, um, especially after COVID. Uh, but, you know, when I was doing my research, I had to actually travel to these places and, and consult material and even uh, figuring out where the material might be. It is you know it takes really a long time before you you find um, the the right places and and then you know you have to have the funding to travel there and so I'm I take this opportunity to just say how grateful I am to the many archivists who have assisted me uh, during my research I mean archivists are angels on earth I think <laughs> you know they're just really so so generous with their expertise and you know their knowledge and and sharing this knowledge with others. I definitely agree with that assessment because it's almost, they're like almost the hidden figures who most oftentimes you don't hear much about and the work, it is so strenuous to actually go in those archives um, and put in the time to recover the material. Now, your book, it is thematically organized. Um, What are some of the themes that you cover in the book? Well, the book is, of course, about abolitionism, so these anti-slavery campaigns in the United States and then um, in Europe, uh, how, how also you know, the, the raising of uh, awareness uh, against uh, of the horrors of slavery and fighting against uh, slavery was also taking place in, in various parts of, of Europe, in, in England uh, mainly, and, um, and how, you know, the... Americans really wanted uh, to get the support of the British because they thought that that would really make an impact um, in America. And, um, and so then uh, there's, of course, women's emancipation is, is one of the themes. Uh, Italy's unification is mentioned there. And so, um, uh, so the book is also organized uh, chronologically to a great extent because I follow uh, Sarah Ramond. <laughs> and her involvement in, in these many movements and uh, through these many themes of, um, she was also involved in 
in uh, suffrage movements. Oh, she believed in equality of races and genders, and um, you know the right for women to to vote and uh, be uh, emancipated. So these are all um, some of the themes and topics that are uh, touched upon in in the book. Now, what I find most interesting, and there was much I found interesting, and I wanted you to be able to share a little bit about with our listeners, what was her life like in the United States being born into the so-called free North? Well, free North uh, meant that you were not enslaved, but of course there was a lot of discrimination uh, going on. And um, one of Ramon's, uh, Sarah Ramon's uh, strategies actually to, um, to um, push change was, um, at least in my reading of her actions, was that she provoked uh, certain situations and then um, she wrote uh, letters and got the like media attention to to these issues that um, needed uh, fixing. So uh, one example was that she, uh, when she went to the theater, she uh, with her friends, uh, they bought these tickets uh, to the main floor, and when they uh, entered, uh, they were not allowed to go sit there. I mean, of course, she very well knew that the theater was segregated, and there was a spe- specific section for. Black Americans. I mean, she knew this. And so the fact that she had bought these tickets, um, I, I'm really convinced that she did that on purpose uh, just to to um, kind of point out how, um, you know, how, how uh, this sort of discrimination should not uh, take place. And so uh, she refused to leave. They were offered a, a compromise, um, you know, refund of the tickets. They refused to leave. So they were pushed out. And so this whole incident then caught the attention of, of media and, and newspapers uh, all the way in Europe. In Scotland, wrote about this incident. So, so I think this was her strategy to um, raise awareness of these discriminatory practices. So... Um, you know, discrimination, segregation was very much a fact, um, uh, something that that she had to uh, deal with uh, in the in the United States. But she was also very concerned about uh, enslavement and slavery, and really wanted that to be abolished. And so, um, her whole whole family—they were all activists—and uh, so. Um, she really got this support from her family and uh, her father her uh, uh, father was very active but also mother and her sisters and her brother was uh, one of the the most prominent uh, abolitionist lecturers uh, in the United States uh, Charles Lennox so um, so her life was really one of activism to to promote change did she leave the United States and go to Europe? She wanted to uh, go uh, raise awareness of uh, the system of uh, enslavement um, among Europeans, among the British. And so, you know, to get this support for the abolitionist movement uh, in the United States. So that's the, the, the main reason that, that she left. She wanted to talk about 
slavery. And what was her reception? What was like her experiences when she began in England? Well, of course, it was a novelty to have a, a woman, first of all, talk in front of uh, mixed audiences of, of men and women, or a woman to talk um, in front of an audience, uh, period. And so this is something that I, I feel so grateful for her, because she really paved the, the way, the, the stage for, for all of us uh, women to, to be able to talk in front of audiences. And so she did this, uh, even though it was uh, stigmatized uh, to a certain extent, it was not really approved of, but she was such an eloquent speaker and um, she had this very uh, convincing and uh, very pleasant uh, presence on the stage. She was, so, she was very uh, well received. And so it was uh, also the novelty of having a, a woman and a black woman talk about uh, uh, political issues um, uh, in front of audiences that also attracted uh, these, these uh, large numbers of, of people. So her lectures were usually really packed. They were crowded and people were left out. Um, not everybody was able to enter the, the lecture halls. And um, she used every occasion she could uh, to uh, talk publicly about this, uh, these issues that she was very much um, dedicated to and, uh, and in, in, involved in and, um, and interested in. And um, so she was really exhausted. Uh, there were times that she was she was really exhausted, but she she kept going, and uh, she was very well received. Also socially, um, white women uh, saw her as a as a sister, and uh, so she didn't, uh, or at least it appears that she didn't really have to deal with um, uh, discrimination the same way as she did in in the United States, and. Um, the difference, really big difference also, of course, was that um, European societies were not uh, segregated um, or not at least not on the basis of, of race, more on the basis of class. So there's discrimination and segregation uh, in many societies, but the, the basis, the reasons for this can be, can be different and were different. Now she all even as she was promoting, you know, abolitionists abolitionism to free the enslaved population. She also pursued her own personal goals while she was in England as well. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so she enrolled in this uh, ladies uh, Bedford Ladies College in in London, which is basically the same professors who taught at at uh, University College London were teaching there, and. Um, I'm not sure if she was the the only black uh, female student there, so uh, which would have been a, a really great uh, novelty uh, as well, and uh, something um, you know that maybe the other uh, girls uh, were not um, accustomed to having a, a, a black peer, but um, they seem to have accepted her. Um, in in the the school and in the environment, and when I found the medical school uh, documents, uh, there were letters of recommendation um, that accompanied those um, 
those documents and her application to be admitted to the medical school. And so there were these uh, recommendation letters from uh, people from UCL uh, Medical School. So it turns out that she also became a nurse in uh, while she was in uh, in in London. And so it's really amazing that she had this time and energy to uh, study. Uh, and then at the same time, keep on lecturing because she never gave up uh, lecturing uh, against uh, against uh, slavery and also promoting uh, women's rights and women's uh, suffrage. So she was really remarkable. Yeah, she was remarkable in that aspect. And I think part of that possibly may go back to the fact, as you were speaking about a moment before, about the discrimination she faced in the North in pursuit of her education there and being denied those same opportunities in school. So, you know, that might have served as a motivating factor um, when she felt a little exhausted to say, I can keep going and doing this. Um, as she now had the opportunity to do it. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Because she was expelled from school uh, in the United States because of her race. And so, right. Um, now, she stays in England for a while, but she leaves. What prompted her to go and where did she go? Well, she left England and there again, she had a, an opportunity to... Um, bring attention to uh, American laws that needed to be changed because she first wanted to go to uh, Paris, go to France, and she needed a visa. And she went to the London uh, office, the American representative in London who um, would have needed to give her a visa to stamp her passport. And so uh, she went there in person. And um, so this created another scandal that was all over the the papers, uh, first in England and then in the United States, because the officer at, at, um, who, who was supposed to give the visa, he wrote in his, his diaries, why did she come in person? Had she just sent the documents to me, I would have given her the visa. But when she came here, I could, I could see that she was a black woman. And so she didn't, she doesn't have a citizenship because officially, you know, blacks didn't have um, American citizenship. So she couldn't have a passport, but they carried these substitute passports with them, which should have been recognized as, as passports. And so, um, so I, I think Sarah Ramon probably went to the office in person exactly for this reason, to bring attention to this absurd and paradoxical rule that they weren't citizens and they were not entitled to have passports, but they could have these documents that served as passports. And so, um, so, uh, so she, um, you know, she used this occasion again to bring attention to, to something that um, needed uh, fixing, needed to change. And so um, she didn't really like Paris um, that much, at least uh, this is what's reported in, in some letters uh, of people she met there. And so she uh, moved to uh, Florence and she enrolled in the medical school here. And the medical school was one of the most prestigious medical schools in, in Europe at the time, uh, the Santa Maria Nuova Hospital School. 
And it seems that her sister had already been in living in Florence for some time. And so, uh, but the sister, uh, Caroline, she left uh, when uh, Sarah moved uh, to Florence. And so she, uh, the first year, she was admitted to the medical school. And the first year she audited classes. And then she took the entrance exam, which she passed with uh, uh, exceptional uh, marks. And then she um, she studied here and, and she, she graduated from the, the medical school as an obstetrician. Then she met an Italian, um, uh, Lazzaro Pintor, who was originally from uh, Cagliari, from uh, Sardinia, and uh, they got married. And so um, then she stayed in, uh, in Italy um, the, the rest of her life. She did go back to England uh, every now and then, and she did go back to France uh, for shorter visits, but her uh, main her residence was uh, was in Italy. And her sister, both two two of her sisters at least uh, were also here with her, and and so um, so was her nephew. So Caroline's uh, son Ed, Edmund was here also in in Italy. Wow. I mean, it was, you know, she had gone from being in Massachusetts all the way to England and then finally on to Italy. I mean, she had such a remarkable life. Now, during her travels and relocations, did she meet any other African-Americans during that time? Well, yes, like I mentioned, her sister uh, was living here um, some periods of time. And um, the whole book project actually started because I had written a, an essay about Sarah Ramond when I found the medical school documents, and I thought, that's it. But then I was curious about the people that she might have met uh, during her stay in, in Italy and started looking into that just out of my own curiosity. And I found these letters written by... Um, by her nephew's uh, wife, or her nephew and the nephew's wife. The, the wife was, was British, and um, uh, as far as I know, she was white. And so these letters tell about their life in Italy, how they vacationed in uh, Sanremo and Viareggio, so uh, these um, most popular, fashionable uh, places. And so I started... Uh, writing the book because I, I thought that I these letters needed to be shared uh, with others, and um, you know to get to also get this um, uh, tell people about the the life that they had here. So when she was here, I I know that she met Frederick Douglass when he came to Italy. They met in Rome. She was at the time living in Rome, and her residence was right next uh, to the um, artist. Uh, Black American artist Edmund Lewis's uh, studio. I have not been able to find a document that would clearly confirm that Edmund Lewis and and Sarah Raymond met or um, befriended each other. But um, I can um, there. There's just no way that they would not have known about each other or uh, would not have met because they they uh, knew so many people in common already in the United States. Many of the abolitionists um, that were uh, Sarah Ramon's uh, friends uh, were also Edmunia Lewis's um, contacts. Uh, they they both 
um, knew these other Americans who were here. They knew um, Italians. They knew uh, other foreigners. And um, they lived so close to, or she lived so close to Edmund Lewis's studio in the same building, basically. So there's no way that they uh, would have not met. But when Frederick Douglass was in, in Rome and had lunch with the with Sarah and her two sisters, um, Edmonia Lewis, she, he doesn't mention Edmonia Lewis. Um, he mentions Edmonia Lewis the, the following day. Um, he went to visit uh, Edmonia Lewis. So, so I don't have like a concrete proof that they met, but um, I, I think it's highly probable that they, they did. So, um, so those are the African-Americans, the black Americans that I know that uh, were also here. Uh, in Italy at the time. But then, of course, you know, there were other artists um, um, and possibly other travelers, Black American travelers as well. So um, I'm, that's something I'm, I'm trying to find out now. I'm, I'm working on this project. So, Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, with Lewis Art Studio being right, right next door, you would come to that normal conclusion that they at least interacted or passed by each other. But, you know, Lewis, she was such a private individual. Um, yes. And rightly so, um, after everything that happened to her. But, you know, she, I, I would, as you assumed, they could have at least, I would assume they at least met on one occasion. Right. Uh, at the very, very least. But that's so fascinating that she lived like right there, art studio. Um, that's such a, just an image in your mind that you can just imagine if they did interact together, um, the stories that they would share with each other. Right. Yes. And also like how, how well did they know each other and how much time they did spend with it, spend with each other, you know, it's, um, it's something that, that I find really intriguing and, and it's, it's something that's really driving me to you know, find out. I'm just so curious about this. So. I know the research process, it's always there. Now, as you were working on Raven, was there anything that surprised you about her? Yes. Um, about her life. I, I had, I, I didn't, imagine at all that she would be involved in Italy's unification movement. That was a complete surprise to me to find that. And, and uh, so Italy was going through this unification movement at that time uh, when, uh, when Sarah Armand was in London. And Giuseppe Mazzini, who was one of the leading figures in this unification movement, was often in exile in, in London. And so they met and they, they became good friends. They went to the opera together uh, in London. And so she also met uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, um, who was the other leader of Italy's unification movement. And so he also came to London and, and um, Sarah Ramont met him there. And so she participated in these fundraising bazaars. They were collecting money for this unification movement. And the relationship with these two men must have been uh, quite, uh, um, there, there must have been like really a lot of respect uh, toward her because uh, when Sarah Ramon first moved to Florence, um, I found out that, that um, you know, sources mentioned that she met Garibaldi when, uh, when she was in, when she came to Florence. 
But what I didn't know until quite recently is that Garibaldi was in Florence only for two days. And so he was a, such a, um, a prominent figure and uh, also many women were attracted to him. And so I'm sure that he was receiving people um, and didn't have time to receive everybody who wanted to meet him. So, so I think it's quite significant that he had time to meet um, you know, he, he accepted uh, Sarah Ramon's request to to meet with him. So so I think that's really significant. It is. That is quite the accomplishment. Um, now, was there anything that did not surprise you about her life? Um, well, when I first uh, started looking into her life, you know, I think it was obvious right away that she was very... Uh, determined. She was courageous. She was bold uh, in her actions and her words. And so, um, you know, the more I got to sort of know her, uh, the more, um, you know, the, the, that, that was something that I, I continually expected of her that, you know, she would keep on being determined, uh, bold, and, um, you know, so dedicated to her cause. That she was. I mean, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it's finally when she gets to Italy, you know, she determines to go the what others would say is a traditional route, but it's still untraditional for her because she's at that point. She has gotten a medical degree. She gets married. Um, at the age of 50. Yes. Um, she did it her own way. Yeah, uh, with a man who was younger than she was. Right. Which it's so interesting. But then, of course, you know, that isn't quite the end of the story. But it's just she carved her own path. I yes. mean, you know, I don't feel I don't think she wanted to be bound by any structures or terms. She wanted to be who she wanted to be. And that is what she did. And that's a really good point. I mean, um, you know, she was very knowledgeable and, and everything, but what really, um, what I was left with when, when I, when I was um, getting to know her and her life is that she really did everything. She, she did not think that, you know, she was black or uh, that she was a woman. She, she really went ahead and, and she did what she felt that needed to be done and what she wanted to do. So um, that's why I think she's so so remarkable is because she's uh, a pioneer. She's a trailblazer in, in so many uh, aspects because, first of all, she was a, a woman who spoke publicly in front of these mixed audiences of men and women. That's just not something that, that was done, really, at that time. And she did it. And um, I don't think she thought twice about it. It was just something that she felt that needed to, she wanted to do and needed to be done. And, and so she did it. Uh, a woman um, going to um, a medical school, that wasn't very common at, at that time, to say the least. And not only, she, she studied uh, in Italy, and she studied in Italian with, uh, with Italian women. So she didn't, she, these, she didn't, um, like you said, I mean, she really felt that she was not limited by what we usually see as limitations or that can be limitations. 
And I'm so in awe of her, you know, determination and her self-respect because I I think it was just so clear uh, from from her actions and her words um, that she was never ashamed of uh, being a black woman, even though, you know, that was something that um, people around you or the society and, uh, you know, mainstream uh, thinkers would want you to believe, um, you know, that you should be ashamed of, you know, of, of being that. And, and so I, I feel that, you know, that's, that's something that, um, you know, really was um, made an impression on me. I know it's so fascinating because, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking about her in her class, um, learning in Italy, you know, she had to overcome those language barriers that she faced. Um, and she did. I mean, that was that she did. She did not let anything stand in her way. She was determined, you know, in some ways, I think it was almost she relished the challenges because it was proving to those who said, as a black woman, you can't do this. She wanted to prove that you could do this and that she would do this. Right. And she knew French. Uh, she knew Italian. So uh, very talented, um, ambitious, probably, uh, um, you know, very educated. She, she got that education that, that, you know, she was initially denied. Yes. And so how, what do you think her legacy is? What is Raymond's legacy? Well, first of all, like I mentioned, you know, I personally feel this immense gratitude toward her because she, she pioneered uh, in so many ways. Uh, she opened the way for other women. Um, she fought for uh, women's right to vote. Um, you know, she fought for, for women's freedom. Her example, uh, the example of her life, um, you know, is, is also so very empowering. And um, when I'm thinking of her, I, I really feel that, you know, often women are felt, um, women or, you know, um, maybe black Americans, um, those who are not like the representatives of um, the authoritative figures, you know, they were, they're often meant to feel, uh, made to feel that they are less, uh, less capable less deserving, um, and so forth. And, and she was, she never felt that way. And so, um, I really admire her and, and she has really, for myself, she has been such an empowering, uh, example. Um, you know, when I have been in situations where I have, you know, people are tried, have tried to make, make me feel like I'm, I'm less, um, I always think uh, think of her uh, that you know she would not have let people just make you feel this way, and she would would have defended herself, and she would have fought, um, you know, to to um, to change this type of situation. And so she's been really, um, you know, um, empowering. She's been an example that I have myself, I've tried to follow. So I think that's also the, the whole example of her life, what she did and how she acted and, and uh, so forth, um, you know, and, and also as, an, as, a, as a pioneer in so many fields and, and in so many different ways is, uh, is definitely a legacy. 
Yes, I definitely agree with that assessment wholeheartedly. She is an empowering individual and one who can teach us so much here as we are now in 2023. So that begs my next question. What do you want readers to take away from the book as they're reading it? Well, that's that's one thing that I really would like. I hope that I have somehow been able to convey, uh, you know, how, um, you know, how how really empowering, um, you know, she is and, and she was and what pioneering work she did and, um, you know, how much she really fought for for all of us, for all of us who are here in 2023. So um, that's. That's maybe the, the thing that I, I, I think is the most important. I agree. I wholeheartedly second that notion because she, you know, as the times that we live in and the challenges that we face, you can see from her example that she overcame them and she didn't give up and she fought. And that should inspire us as it does you and me and hopefully others to give us hope that we can promote and enact change um, in our own personal lives and in society as a whole. So she is definitely someone whose life can serve as an inspiration to yes, and others. It, right. And, and if you think how, you know, she tackled issues that were huge, you know, like uh, slavery uh, women's uh, right to vote, um, women's emancipation in general, right to education. These were really immense uh, topics that that you know she she you know decided to to make her own. That she did. So I must ask you, what are you working on next after this book? Well, I'm still continuing uh, my work on, on Sarah Rahman, but um, I'm looking at I'm trying to find other uh, black Americans who were in, um, in, in Europe, uh, in, in London, Paris, and uh, mainly in Italy, in Florence and Rome in the 19th century. So Edmundia Lewis is, of course, one. But once I started this project um, with the Smithsonian uh, American Art Museum, and I'm really grateful for, for them uh, and for Theta Foundation for, for funding my research. So I was working on Sarah Raymond, Edmonia Lewis, and Sally Mercer, who was um, the right hand and assistant of the American actress, uh, Charlotte Cushman. So I, um, I have found a lot of uh, documents about these women, but I've also heard that there are so many scholars now working on Edmonia Lewis that, um, that I, I think I may, um, I'm thinking of changing um, this, uh, the, the topic of my own project to try to include others. So that, of course, means um, doing research in the archives and trying to uh, somehow figure out who else might have been in, in Europe. But, you know, I've already already found, um, for example, one woman who was a, a former enslaved woman who was in, in Rome. It's a really big challenge to, to find documents about these, uh, these black women because um, they were usually overshadowed by, um, you know, white 
you know, white Americans or white Europeans. And uh, like, for example, Sally Mercer, um, you know, I haven't really been able to find much about her because um, everybody who met her talks about uh, Charlotte Cushman because she was the main figure. But in a lot of ways, it seems that Charlotte Cushman wouldn't have been able to do basically anything without the help of Sally Mercer. So she was really relying on on Sally um, for everything. And, and Lisa Merrill has done incredible work on on um, Charlotte Cushman and, and uh, Sally Mercer, uh, you know, even, you know, naming uh, Sally. So... Um, so it's really, really challenging, but we'll see. Um, I'm really interested in this topic and, and um, you know, to kind of understand uh, how much of the transatlantic travel between uh, the United States and Europe, particularly Italy, um, you know, was also part of the, the Black American experience. I agree, and I look forward to your next work. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Salinas. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me uh, for this uh, really nice uh, discussion on uh, Sarah Ramond. Thank you so much, Katrina. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of An Abolitionist Abroad. I assure you, you will not regret it. It is for academics. It's for most importantly, non-academics, to learn more about this amazing woman and the transnational life that she lived. It is thought-provoking. You will see and learn about the challenges that she faced in her life and how she was able to overcome them. And hopefully it will serve as inspiration in your own lives. So please go out and pick up a copy. It is most definitely a worthwhile read.